0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Friday and Options Action. I'm Melissa Lee, live at the NASDAQ Market side in Times Square. We've got a big show coming your way. Here's what's on tap.
2: The S&P ended September by breaking a seven-month win streak and posting its worst monthly performance since March of last year. When something like that happens, investors habitually jettison two types of stocks. The first, their worst performers. The second, well, let's leave that surprising one to Carter Worth. Then, sometimes things just get so bad... They're good. Tony Zhang hops back on a past favorite that's been taken for a rough ride. And finally, a promising new COVID treatment has Merck in the spotlight. But tonight, it's also spotlighting several important lessons about surprise market events and how you should treat them. Professor Cole has the prescription. It's time to risk less and make more. Options action starts right now.
1: Let's get right to it. Stocks are rallying to kick out the first day of Q4 following the market's first month, worst first month of the year. And the chart master says after a big flush like we had in September, investors habitually sell two types of stocks. Carter, what are they?
3: Sure. Before looking at the charts, conceptually, not a type by sector or market cap or business, but by pattern, which is to say stocks that are especially weak preceding a sell off, they go down the most most often because people know in a way they shouldn't have been there they're not working anyway and they're like. What am I doing I've known this is wrong for a while now it's really getting worse there's no bid. But the exact opposite end is a stock that's quite extended. Where the sentiment is I've got a lot of money in this I've made great gains I know I've been overstaying my welcome. And that second circumstance we're seeing now in a lot of high flyers like ISRG and Costco. Um, certain financials and that's what we're going to talk about right now take a look at. Blackstone BX. Look at this table. Blackstone BX was $33 on the pandemic low and it hit 136. That's the best single financial performer in the entire sector from the pandemic low and on a five year table that you see there. The numbers are straightforward compared to a broker like Morgan Stanley or an asset manager like T. Rowe or a credit card company American Express or a traditional bank like JP Morgan best performing five year. So let's look at a few charts. Here is a standard two year chart and We have this as a logarithmic scale and it starts at the COVID low. And what is important about this setup, and you can see it quite clearly and optically, uh, uh, it presents itself. We've failed to the panning at the top of the upper channel. We are right at the midpoint. Second chart, do we stop at the midpoint or is the 150 day moving average where we're likely at I think uh, that is what you see there and that is my objective. So third chart, remove the parallel lines and look at the chart of BX with just the 150-day. That comes into play at around $100. That would be a 15% decline from here. The stock's down 17 already, when financials as a sector only down three. Finally, look at the fifth chart. It's the same chart. It's with the 150 moving average going back 10, 12 years. This is one of the longest stretches, both in terms of magnitude without a checkback and duration. We think there's
1: more downside. All right. So, Mike, what's a trade on BX based on Carter's charting?
4: Yeah. So, you know, Blackstone, obviously, one of the most well-known private equity companies founded by Steve Schwartzman and Pete Peterson some time ago, is obviously one of the most successful uh, financial startups that we've ever seen. And they've really been operating very well. They've seen their fee-related income grow consistently. They've seen their assets under management grow consistently. And while a lot of financial companies... Have seen pressure on fees, on fee margins more specifically. Uh, you know, this is a company due to the nature of their alternative investing and, of course, their diversification that isn't seeing quite as much uh, exposure to that. That said, this is a company that has also benefited from the accessibility of cheap debt, from I- the increase in asset prices generally. And most importantly, it has benefited from basically an increase in its valuation multiple its historical valuation multiple is probably closer to twenty two times earnings relative to the twenty seven that it's trading right now at its more historical multiple that would put the stock right around ninety seven dollars so i think to play carter's technically bearish thesis right here. We can just look out to December. I was looking earlier at the 115 dollars put spread. Bear in mind that I was saying that it's historical valuation multiple. That would put the stock right around 97 bucks a share. So I'm sort of targeting that on the uh, downside. That put spread would cost a little over $5, about $5.15 uh, mid to mid when I was looking at it earlier today. That's very close to 25% of the distance between the strikes, which when we're looking at debit spreads, and this one is very tight, uh, very close to at the money. The stock was just, I think, under 116 bucks at the close, and we own the 115 put strike here. I think this is the way that you can make a bearish bet. Now, look. Obviously, if stocks get hit in between now and year's end, that, that would affect this. If we see rates rise, that, of course, is a fundamental headwind potentially for them. And so I think there are a lot of reasons why it would be hard to believe that they're going to go back up to the prior highs. And we want to take advantage, though, of options to uh, essentially make a downside bet on the name.
1: Tony, what's your take on the trade?
5: Yeah, so I, I agree with both, uh, both on the technicals and the fundamentals. If you look at the chart, it's a pretty poor setup. Uh, we, you see the broken trend line here, and not only has we broken the trend line, we've also broken through some short-term moving averages. A 50-day moving average has been broken. Momentum has turned negative. I think we're headed back towards that 100 and 150 day moving average that Carter referred to. And when you look at the business itself, fundamentally, it does look quite strong. You saw about almost 20% growth in AUM last year. They're pretty much on pace for similar type growth in terms of AUM this year. But the valuations are really what is concerning. And we've seen that 15% drop in the stock price over the past two weeks. I think that also has to do with the fact that interest rates have risen. And that's a headwind for this particular name. And when you look at the pullback that we've seen here over the past uh, two weeks, implied volatilities are extremely rich on Blackstone. And that's why I think using a put spread like Mike does, Mike has going out to December makes the most sense because he's able to use the put spread, the short 95 strike to offset some of the premium that he's paying for those at the money puts, which are quite expensive. And by going out to December, he's also mitigating some of the short dated implied volatility that we currently see here on Blackstone.
1: All right, we want to get to a news alert here on Rivian. Let's get to Phil Abo on the fast line with that. Phil. And,
6: hey, Melissa, we have uh, the filing from Rivian for an initial public offering. Uh, the importance of this cannot be um, you know, understated uh, or overstated, I should say, uh, importance because Rivian is, when you look at the electric vehicle startup, it is considered to be the one company that uh, potentially could grow from idea phase all the way through to being a large uh, automaker, at least as large as potentially what Tesla is looking at. Now, nobody's saying that's actually going to happen, but they have a number of uh, strategic investors from Amazon to Ford, uh, and RJ Scaringe, who is the CEO, founder of Rivian, and the CEO is widely viewed within the auto industry as really one of the visionaries in terms of the potential for uh, electric vehicles. So this IPO filing, long expected, it, uh, it has now happened. We don't have other details in terms of uh, ex- exactly what's going to be coming out through the IPO. Uh, but this has been expected and it has now been filed. And now we get to see uh, what uh, Rivian can do as a publicly traded company once this is completed.
1: Yeah, and we get to see some more information about the company, Phil. And I'm wondering, from your standpoint, what's the biggest question you think in- investors and analysts would have at this point when it comes to Rivian?
6: Really, the size of the market, potentially, beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that they are developing, building. They've already started working on uh, building electric delivery vans for Amazon. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, that's great. That's your your big backer there, and uh, it should do well. Look, they have a couple of models coming out, the R1T, which is a an electric truck. They also have the R1S, which is an electric SUV. Uh, both of them, uh, the people that I've talked with who have seen Uh, early versions of the R1T uh, give it very high marks and we will see first deliveries of those uh, coming up later this year so I think the big question is going to be okay what do you see happening beyond the Amazon customer relationship and that's when you talk about the R1T and the R1S and deliveries to the public.
1: All right Phil thanks. Phil LeBeau with that news that Rivian has filed for an IPO Mike, I'm wondering, you know, is this a case, we, we had a screen up of, of different EV makers or different companies that are trying to be EV makers, um, is this a case where where Tesla will be sort of the, the register, um, the fund source of funds for Rivian, a Rivian investment?
4: Uh, I don't think it would have to be necessarily. We, we've seen a little bit of appreciation, first of all, in the big U.S. OEMs in, in GM and Ford I'm kind of hoping as a as a Ford backer that that doesn't necessarily happen. But, you know, Tesla has a lot more going on than than just vehicles. And in terms of the size of the market, you know, Phil was just talking, for example, about Amazon delivery vans. Uh, The vehicle market for electronic vehicles in the United States is as big as the vehicle market itself, frankly, because I think we can all agree that whether it is a commercial vehicle, an SUV, a sports car, whatever, Chances are, within the next decade, they're all going to be electric. And it's a big market opportunity. But Tesla's market opportunity is a little more than just the things with wheels on them.
1: All right. We've got a lot more ahead here on Options Action. And don't forget, optionsaction.cnbc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Here's what's coming up next.
2: Still to come. This morning, Merck surprised investors with a new kind of COVID treatment. Tonight, Professor Co explains how to treat such surprises. And the gang helps you decide what kind of investor you are. Plus, calling all Options Action fans. Reach into your pocket, grab your phone, and tweet us your question at Options Action. If it's nice, we'll answer it on air when Options Action returns.
1: Welcome back to Options Action. As we discussed last half hour, Merck bouncing today after surprising the market with news of an effective COVID treatment. But the news also presents the opportunity for a special call to action on the action. Professor Koh, why don't you explain?
4: Yeah, so we're going to take a look at selling covered calls now for people who haven't traded options. Selling covered calls is the investment strategy, and I'm making sure to call it an investment strategy rather than a trading strategy, that is very often the first option strategy that people will embark on. And that is selling calls against stock that you already own. And this is a situation where the stock's largely been moribund for about the last two years. In fact, it was significantly higher. This obviously created some significant upside. We saw a big, sharp upside move today. So, if you're selling covered calls against stock you own and you do this usually somewhat consistently to try to generate a little premium or additional income against the shares you own there's a couple things you want to bear in mind one of them is that you want to watch out for potential catalysts because those are things that can move stocks around now obviously we had a catalyst in the news announcement about this treatment for covid but of course they also have earnings coming up at the last week of october That also can present an opportunity. This isn't a stock that typically moves that much on earnings, but it can elevate options premiums somewhat. Another thing to uh, take a look at is that when you sell options, near-dated options decay more rapidly than longer-dated options do. So when you're selling covered calls, try to keep it inside of 90 days, even 60 or even 30 days sometimes, if you can. And finally, remember that what you're doing is you're trading yield for upside. So when you sell an upside call, you are giving somebody else the right to buy your shares from you, usually at a higher price. So you want to make sure that you're getting enough yield to justify giving away that upside and also that the upside you're giving away is one you can live with. You want to choose a strike. Where you're comfortable selling your shares. I was looking out to the November 87.5 calls that you could sell against the stock, which closed around 81.5 today. Those were just under $1.40 when I was looking at that, that today. What that would offer you is a standstill yield of about 15%, which means that if the stock did nothing and you just consistently sold premium of about that duration for about that amount, you would collect about 15 percent of the current stock price over the course of a year in premium. Now, of course, it's never going to work out exactly that way, but I usually try to make sure I'm collecting enough premium that it justifies taking some equity risk and still gives me some upside participation, usually a minimum of about 1 percent per month.
1: Carter, you say today's move in Merck illustrates exactly how price discovery works in what way?
4: Well, that's right. So just think about the volume,
3: uh, number of shares changing hands, 100 million shares, largest day on record. And how did that happen? Because people took the matter casually? No, there are people who own it who, when the news is released, have to figure out, wait a minute, should I add to this? Maybe I should double it. Wait a minute, this is no good. I need to dump this. So thousands of man hours, if you will, as the expression goes, um, have gone into figuring out what's it worth. And when the stock gaps up like that, and sets a range, that is what price discovery is, which is to say markets are inefficient, but they're very efficient on the day of a newsprint to get the stock to where it belongs. And remember what happened on Pfizer when they announced their news, when they had the COVID? It gapped up like this and then it was dead flat. In fact, sort of drifted for multiple sessions, weeks in fact, afterwards. You have price discovery here and it's not random, but right to its 52 week high and stopped. So selling premium is
1: the way to play. All right. uh, We've got a news alert that we want to get to out of D.C. Kayla Tash has got the story. Kayla.
7: Hey, Melissa, the Biden administration's economic policy toward China is going to come into view beginning on Monday when the U.S. trade representative gives a speech outlining her views and the conclusions from her agency's top to bottom review of China. And I've learned from sources familiar with the matter that in that speech, the U.S. trade representative, Ambassador Catherine Tai, will declare that China is not in compliance with the phase one trade deal that was signed in January 2020. Under that deal, China had two years to buy Uh, $200 billion in additional U.S. goods over the course of each of those years, and China's purchases have fallen well below that target. What is unclear, Melissa, is how exactly USTR is going to respond to that. In the text of the deal, if one of the parties is found to be out of compliance with the deal, that would open up the potential for additional tariffs or additional actions being taken against the other party. We know that the ambassador uh, has been calling for consultations with Beijing directly and also with allies over that. It's going to be a critical speech to watch, especially as we near the end of that first two year period where China will need to make good on those purchases. And now we know the administration will say officially in the most forceful way yet. It has not. Melissa.
1: Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington for us up next, bringing a beat up old favorite back into play. It's just like riding a bike. (laughs) We'll be right back. Welcome back to Options Action. Sometimes massive market flushes create opportunities that are so bad they are good. Tony is taking a fresh spin on a past favorite. So, Tony, what's the name?
5: Uh, the name here is Peloton. Um, and as you said, it's looking so bad that it looks good. So if we take a look at chart here of Peloton... This is a stock that was $18 at the pandemic low. It rallied all the way up to 170 uh, in January of this year. And so far it has pulled back 50% since that peak. And this is really where it starts to approach some prior support here where it tested the $80 level just a few months ago. We're approaching that level and I think this is where it could potentially bounce but also when we take a look at the Peloton chart relative to the market, it's also prior attesting a prior support and as Carter would say, to the penny, and this is really where I think Peloton could see a bounce higher. Um, and if we look at the subscription business of Peloton, it is extremely profitable, especially when you couple it with churn rates that are under 1%, and it's consistently held that for multiple years. So when you couple that with the fact that they've recently launched a lower priced bike, a new treadmill and a new commercial business, this really allows them to start selling substantially higher, uh, substantially more subscriptions uh, in the next year or two. So as Peloton has fallen so much over the past, even just past three weeks or so, we've seen implied volatilities increase by a substantial amount. So to try to take advantage of that implied volatility, I'm going out to November and I'm trading a call spread risk reversal where I'm selling the November $80 puts and I'm buying an 85-100 call spread with the proceeds of that short put. And for viewers who may not be familiar with this particular strategy, you, you you can think of it as two separate strategies where I'm selling the November 80 puts for roughly $5 and I'm taking those $5 to to buy the 85-100 call spread for roughly $5.30. Net-net here, I'm only spending $0.40 for this call spread risk reversal. It does have uh, the obligation of buying the stock if Peloton is below $80 by the November expiration, but I effectively have an 85-100 call spread for virtually zero cost. So if we start to see a substantial rally here, the max reward here is about 15 bucks if Peloton is above 100 by the November expiration.
1: Carter, what do you think of the chart and the trade?
5: Sure, so conceptually think
3: about it, it's the exact opposite of what we just did. Uptrends, really good ones, have counter-trend moves, sell-offs. They punctuate the up move. Downtrends have counter-trend moves, rallies. Playing for a rally here makes a lot of sense. We're right at a well-defined low, that May 8th low, and that's exactly what Tony's doing. It doesn't mean you have to marry it, but I think you can trade it.
1: <laughs> up next, we are taking your tweets back right after this. Welcome back to Options Action. We've got time for a tweet. One viewer asks, I'm short FedEx $250 puts expiring October 15th. I'm bullish in the medium to long term due to low P.E., but think buying an in-the-money leap and selling calls against it may be better than taking assignment at a loss. Any ideas? Mike, any ideas?
4: Yeah, I think, actually, uh, she has some very good ideas here. So we're going into a critically important time for FedEx as we go into the holiday season, but we're coming off a relatively disappointing earnings. And We've seen quite a few of those, actually, from FedEx. I think buying long-dated calls to support your bullish thesis, but selling shorter-dated ones against them to offset that decay and also to have a structure that mitigates your downside in case of further disappointment is the right way to play this name.
1: Uh, Carter, just quickly, on the chart for FedEx...
4: It's pretty darn bad.
1: <laughs> Tony, your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Tony?
5: Oh, sorry. I, I, um, the, the charts look quite, quite terrible. Um, right now, I think the issue is the fact that Amazon is squeezing into their space. And I think this is not particularly, this, this does not look well going into the holiday season for FedEx.
1: Yeah. Um, Mike, any sort of cautionary words when it comes to FedEx or or UPS for that matter, since it's sort of in the same category and and facing the same challenges? Charts a little better there, though.
4: Yeah, so I I think that's definitely true. UPS is looking a little bit stronger. Look, this is a name that has chronically disappointed me going into this season. You know, we've seen a number of disappointing earnings results. Yeah. And so I I definitely think her structure hedges that downside.
1: All right. Mad Money starts right now.